Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Possibility Podcast. My name is Mel Schwartz. I am your host. I practice psychotherapy, marriage counseling. I am a catalyst for new thinking, new ways of looking at reality. I am the author of The Possibility Principle, how quantum physics can improve the way you live, love, and relate. I love to look at possibilities, how we can actualize them into our lives and live authentic, fearless lives. Today's episode is going to focus on the concept of diagnosis. I'm referring not to medical diagnoses, but to mental health diagnoses, psychological and emotional diagnoses. This is an area I am very passionate about. At times, I'm kind of virulent in my attitude about the harm and damage done by the lazy and unthinking way in which we throw around diagnoses and turn them into real things. So let's take a look at this phenomenon. For many of you who have listened to my podcast or read my book, you understand that I challenge the notion of objectivity. Science reveals that objectivity has no basis, and we live our lives in a far more sensible way when we understand that our feelings, our perspectives, and our beliefs shape reality as opposed to objective truths. I am not going to the extreme here. I am not a conspiracy theorist. I realize that the Twin Towers came down, that we landed on the moon, and that the Earth is in fact not flat. That's not the type of objectivity I'm speaking about. But today we'll look at the notion of objectivity and diagnosis. This belief in diagnosis and objectively true diagnoses underscore the notion of pathologizing. What is it to pathologize? To pathologize is to take certain meanings and behaviors and characterize them as medically or psychologically abnormal. You know, we did that with women's hormonal shifts. They became diagnosed and pathologized into hormonal disorders. For the most part, traditional psychotherapy rests on the foundation of diagnosis. This is informed by a biomedical approach. Again, I've gone to great lengths to explain that this biomedical approach is rooted in 17th century thinking, which believes that we can find the single cause for something. Of course, health insurance requires a specific diagnosis to justify coverage. The basic tenet of psychological diagnosis is that objectivity exists and that every psychological condition can be assigned a diagnostic number which appears in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. What a long and ugly term, mental disorders. This is commonly known as the DSM. Let's take one example. There is a new diagnosis called Persistent Complex Bereavement Disorder. Imagine the psychiatric powers that be who write the diagnoses, have determined that grieving should conform to a healthy prescribed period of time. 
The heartbreaking loss you might feel over the death of a loved one is not considered a simple normal human experience. It's now subject to a formula that needs to fit into a diagnosis and psychological criteria. Can you just fathom how absurd that is? You are grieving for too long. You have a disorder. I wonder why they don't have a disorder for not grieving at all. Wouldn't that be curious? Now, in order to diagnose psychological conditions, we would have to assume that the therapists, the clinicians, have no subjective interpretations that are getting in the way. Their own childhood, their own values, their own beliefs, that's not in a way. It doesn't impact or bias them in any way, as though they are calculating robots. Good luck with that. Now, from this perspective of objectivity, a dozen therapists working with the same individual separately would all have to reach the same diagnosis. I can assure you, no such thing would ever happen. Each of us, including therapists, we all see through the filter of subjectivity of our own life experience, colored by our beliefs, our thoughts, our personal history and prejudices, and our unconscious stirrings. This is as true for therapists as it is for clients. So for the most part, therapists are not calculating and detached automatons and robots, but educated professionals with degrees doing their best, but constrained by this mythology of objectivity. So therapists are steeped in the diagnostic penchant. What do I mean by that? to see through the filter of finding the diagnosis to fit the person. Traditionally-minded therapists are confined to identifying and then treating the diagnosis or the pathology instead of creating new possibilities, new inspirations, new ways of helping their clients move forward. So working from this methodology of pathology, therapists often can't help their clients move forward the sense of getting from here to there, or to even identify what there might look like. You know, what I call possibilities. People that I've worked with often have a reasonable ability to understand how they've become who they are and to appreciate the nature of their struggle. Continuing to replay these life events without focus on relief, if not real transcendence, leaves many people dissatisfied with their therapeutic experience. People who come to see me after they've previously been in therapy share that they've come to believe that their hopes won't be reached, that they're going to have to again recount the same life experiences. What people need to do is to see their lives through a new filter, one brimming with possibilities. But this requires a new therapeutic approach, not mired in reducing people to the wounds of their past. New possibilities can only be found from a new perspective, and diagnosis gets in the way. We are experiencing what I call an epidemic of suffering. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, 25% or more of the U.S. population will suffer from a diagnosable mental illness in any given year. And that statistic grows to 50% over your lifetime. So over the course of someone's life, there's a 50% chance that they will have a diagnosable 
psychological disorder. Let's just think about the enormity of that number and statistic. It's staggering. So we're living in a world full of mass disquiet, emotional and psychological suffering. But we don't ask, why is there this epidemic? Rather than asking how to treat emotional and psychological problems, we should first be asking, why are they so prevalent? If half of our population fell gravely ill and we didn't know why, something similar to what's been going on right now with COVID, we'd be looking for the source, for the cause of the problem. Why aren't we asking why half of our population will be experiencing emotional and psychological malaise? I believe our epidemic has two primary causes. We'll talk a bit now about the first, then we'll move into the second. The first has very much to do with my picture of living under a game plan or an old world view. They can't possibly allow us to thrive. We experience so much despair because we're living from a game plan that creates that despair. The rules of engagement, how we live, competition, measuring, analyzing, can't help us thrive as human beings. And we then exacerbate the suffering by labeling those of us who do struggle, maybe the majority of the population, as having something clinically wrong with us. And we diagnose these people with disorders. This whole concept of disorder comes from drinking at the fountain of separation and certainty. You know, those themes I've discussed many, many times, the 17th century worldview. Let's just look at anxiety, such a prevalent disorder. Well, we've been taught to analyze and to try to predict the future as well as we can. For anyone who follows those recommendations, you'll be suffering from anxiety. Because you see, the future is uncertain. We can't possibly know it. And if we need to know it, we're operating from fear. That's a, just a brief example of the game plan for living that we live under can't possibly work. There's a word that I came across and I use in my book to describe this circumstance. It's normosis. Normosis is what happens when we acclimate to something that is dysfunctional. We have acclimated to the dysfunction of how we live, and then we turn around and point an accusatory finger at the half of us who suffer. That's normosis. We're taking what should be unacceptable disorders of culture, and we're making them normal. So if half of us are going to have an emotional or psychological disorder, there's something wrong with our game plan for life. But let's come back now to this pathologizing. I said earlier, there are two causes. The second cause of the epidemic of psychological and emotional unrest is the medical and psychotherapeutic drive to attach a label, a diagnosis to what otherwise is actually normal human behavior. Let's take a look at what I'm getting at. As I just mentioned, in the DSM diagnosis for bereavement, the compulsion, the need to put a diagnosis to normal conditions has become crazy. This inclination for diagnosing what are normal responses to difficult life challenges and calling them clinical depression, 
it blocks our ability to help those going through these challenges. In many instances, depression makes sense. The loss of a loved one, a serious illness, being fired from your job, having financial difficulties, that should all cause what I call a situational depression. Many years ago, a woman came into my office, told me she had seen a psychiatrist and she was diagnosed as depressed and on medication. I said, tell me your story. What's going on? She shared that her husband left her for another woman, a younger woman, provided no financial support. She was still in the early stages of going to court to seek some alimony and child support. And she was left with three young children. Not only was she going through the heartbreak and the torment of infidelity and the loss of her partner, she didn't know how she was going to make her payments for her rent, provide food for the children. It wouldn't make sense if she weren't feeling depressed and anxious. In fact, if she weren't, I'd be concerned. She was suffering from heartbreak, abandonment, financial crisis, and an overwhelm from parenting. That depression is situational, not clinical. She didn't have a disorder. She was being challenged by overwhelming life circumstances. So I didn't treat her depression. I treated her life circumstance. I looked at how I could help her and assist her in her grieving and creating a sense of hopefulness and a plan for gaining the tools she'd need to move forward. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't people who are indeed suffering on the clinical level. There are people who are chronically depressed. But rather than apply these terms in an indiscriminate way, we need some relativity. We need context. When diagnoses are delivered in the astronomical numbers we're witnessing, it speaks to something much larger, what I call a diagnosis disorder. I'd like to propose that the American Psychiatric Association consider a new diagnosis. The diagnosis isn't an actual real thing unto itself. You see, the problem with all diagnoses is that we confuse the description of the diagnosis with being an actual thing. What am I talking about? Well, a diagnosis is a couple of words put together by a team of psychiatrists to describe behavior that's becoming prevalent. Let's look at ADHD. That term, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, came into being sometime initially in the 1960s, and then I think it was reframed around 1980. Now, as a description, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, it makes sense. We're describing something abstract, something we think we see, and we're putting words to it. There's a problem. The diagnosis disorder is this. We come to think of the words as being an actual thing. If I hear therapists say, you know, my client Jane has ADHD, I'll say, what do you mean she has it? ADHD isn't a thing. It's a description of behaviors that someone's struggling with. We cannot and must not reduce people to a diagnosis. The diagnosis is a description. There's a term for this. It's called reification. When our minds make up something, which is good to start with, it's a breakthrough and an insight, but then we forget that our mind made it up and we treat it as real. Reification. 
the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead called that the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. So when you say Jane has ADHD, that's reification. It's not the West Nile virus. It's a group of words describing a behavior. The ADHD could be informed by many things. It could be informed by diet, chaos at home, alcoholism in terms of her parents. It may be the individual is overtasking. Innumerable possibilities. The diagnosis is really a matter of subjective interpretation and it needs to be acknowledged as such. If it's not, therapists fall prey to seeing this disorder wherever they look for it. You know, there's an expression I'm fond of, whatever you look for is what you'll see. So an objective diagnosis, a supposedly objective diagnosis, it speaks to the symptoms, but rarely to the various contexts that inform that diagnosis. Here's an example. I had been working with an individual, let's call him Henry, for a number of years. And I knew Henry to have really challenging self-esteem. He just never felt good enough about himself. In particular, he felt that he wasn't smart enough. He took a break from therapy. He came back to see me and told me he was now on ADHD medication. I was curious. I said, why is that? And he said to me, well, he went to see a psychiatrist and he complained that when he was at work and he was reading a report, he couldn't pay attention. Hence the diagnosis and the medication. At first glance, that makes sense. But here's what the psychiatrist didn't know that I reminded Henry of. Henry perpetually had thoughts. I'm not smart enough. When he was doing a report at work, he would compare other people to himself. They finished reading the report. They're working on their notes. Why aren't I? I must be so stupid. He had recurring thoughts, low self-esteem getting in his way that was causing the distraction. The ADHD was a symptom, not the cause. Interestingly, there is no diagnosis in the DSM for low self-esteem. I find low self-esteem often at the cause underneath anxiety, depression, ADHD. Why do you think low self-esteem is not a diagnosis? Because there's no financial profit to be gained because there's no medication to treat. Can you imagine what a disaster we create? What havoc we create when we don't look for and treat low self-esteem, let alone train clinicians or educators as to what really we need to do to construct healthy self-esteem? This pathologizing is ruinous. Let me provide another example for you. I had been working with a man in his 20s, Timothy, who shared that he had been severely depressed his entire life. He was isolated, suicidal. He had dropped out of college. As we reviewed his history of therapy, he recounted a detached and mechanical series of interventions during which all of his therapists diagnosed and medicated him, suggesting that the best he could do was to manage his depression. By doing so, they contributed to his belief that he was a damaged human being. First, 
I wanted to understand on an empathic level what this word depression felt like for him. I wasn't interested in the clinical term, but what the word signified. When someone says to me, I feel anxious or I feel depressed, I move into it, into shared meaning. Tell me what that word means for you. Timothy recounted a traumatic period in his childhood when his father, who was alcoholic and was also emotionally and verbally abusive, this led to a really limiting and damaging what I call wave collapse. For those of you who are familiar with that, if you're not, check it out in my book, The Possibility Principle. But the wave collapse is the limiting beliefs about ourselves, primarily through childhood. So Timothy, because he had that tyrannical dad, he adopted a coping mechanism early in life that helped compensate for his feeling at risk. In order to feel safe, he kind of protected himself in a womb-like protection. He disengaged from life and from relationships where there was risk. He began to live like a recluse, avoiding interpersonal contact. He didn't enjoy friends, hobbies, sports, or a career. He isolated. I suggested to him that in his circumstances of feeling isolated, not having contact or interaction with life, it would make sense that he was depressed, wouldn't it? He was barely living, but his depression was symptomatic. It wasn't the cause of his problem. He wasn't damaged as much as he was damaging himself. I tried to show him how to access a new defining moment full of possibilities once he could let go of his limiting beliefs and thoughts. I'm providing these brief examples for you to understand that the diagnosis is not an objective, universal, concrete thing. I think the diagnoses, if we use them subjectively and we utilize them as representative of what we think we see, are helpful. So we could say, I see Jane as being very distractible. It would conform with what we call ADHD, but I need to delve into this with her and understand what the sources are. We need to take time and be humanistic. A diagnosis is a reification. It is made up shit. I don't mean that we don't struggle. We don't have fear and insecurities and anxieties and depression. The diagnosis is a label. Let's get underneath the label and let's use the diagnosis as a description, not as a real thing, because it is not a real thing. And never forget the incalculable fortune of revenue the pharmaceutical companies earn by diagnosis leading toward medication. Again, I'm not opposed to selective medication in a thoughtful way, but throwing a pill at something is not going to solve your problem. The indiscriminate and falsely objective belief in diagnosis is damaging. It gets in the way of healing. It gets in the way of understanding. Let's turn this diagnostic language into subjective language. I feel depressed. I often feel depressed. I have felt depressed my whole life. That's in a reasonable and effective communication. I am depressed. It's immutable, unchangeable. Diagnosis needs to lighten up. We need to take it as a description and nothing more. If you're interested in this topic, please listen to my 
podcasts on this. Read my book, The Possibility Principle, and my articles at my website, melschwartz.com. Also, any number of interviews that I've been on the receiving and giving end on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please send comments, questions, criticisms to me at mel at melschwartz.com. I'd be welcome to having a conversation, learning what your thoughts are and reconsidering my own. While I'm at it, I'd be greatly appreciative if you've enjoyed this or other episodes, if you'd leave a review and a rating on whatever host you listen to my podcast on, that would be great. Until next time, I wish you peace, health, presence, and joy. Until then, be well. Thank you.